calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody. I think I may have mixed up my weeks and said that this week was going to be the start of Pride Month, but turns out there was another week in the month of May to celebrate AAPI History Month. And I'm so, so glad that there was, but I am very sorry for the confusion. So I wanted to start off the episode with that right off the bat. Before we get going, I do want to chat a little bit about the Angry Feminist Book Club. I know you're all probably sick of me talking about it, but I am very, very excited to go on to the next book, especially while we wait for India to have the time to have an interview with me to be able to ask any of the questions you have about her book Still Learning. So in the meantime, if you want to get a head start on June's book, I am currently reading Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson, and so far I am thoroughly enjoying it. It is a little bit of a different style of writing, and it's something that I'm not totally used to reading or comfortable with reading. It kind of reminds me of when I was reading Barracoon, where it was just such a different writing style than what I'm used to, but I'm really, really enjoying the book so far. There's a lot of conversation with, you know, a queer person growing up in a very conservative religious home and what that means for this person. And I read online that it is a semi-autobiographical book by Jeanette Winterson. So it was interesting to learn also about the author's life. I read that she also had a memoir out there that kind of goes deeper into, you know, who the characters in the story really were and so on and so forth. So this all sounds like it's totally up my alley. I'm very excited to start finishing the book and learning more about it and the author and so on and so forth. But I really thought that this would be a great, great, great book to cover for Pride Month. And speaking of Pride Month, I forgot to announce this on the last couple of episodes, but I did announce it on Instagram. The show will be having another Coming Out Stories episode this year. It will be in the final week of June. It'll be the last full-length episode that I share. So if all of you could have your stories to me by June 23rd, I would love that. If you want to remain anonymous, 
I can totally do that for you. Just make sure that you note it in the email or DM that you send me that you would like to remain anonymous. And I'll make sure that, you know, any descriptors or names or anything like that are not used in your stories for your own safety. But overall, I think that the coming out episodes have been just some of the most moving episodes, not just for me, you know, reading them and being sent these letters, but reading them to all of you. The responses that I get every single time we do a coming out episode has always been so positive and amazing. And I just I'm so excited to do it again this year. So I'm going to remind you one more time, if you do want to send in your story, feel free to email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist if you want to share your story. And if you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club, go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can join the book club for $5 or you can join the feminist faves level for $8 if you want to get these episodes ad free and some little bonuses every now and again. All right, I'm done yammering on. I am ready to talk about this week's topics. In Hawaii, there is something known as mahu, which means in the middle. This is a third gender which is celebrated in both Hawaii and Tahitian cultures, and they were usually respected as teachers, usually of hula dance and chant. In the time before colonization, each of these three genders had their roles— The mahu were revered as healers and were also responsible for passing down their culture through the generations. They were revered as goddesses. Traditionally, a parent would even ask a mahu to name their children. Much of the mahu's rich history was wiped away when white settlers intervened. The story of the mahu is told through the tale of the wizard stones of Kape Mahu. These are four boulders in Waikiki representing the four ancient mahu healers who allegedly transferred their healing powers to the stones before vanishing. This story was passed down verbally for most of its history, but in 1907, its first written account was by James Hartbottle Boyd, published by Thomas G. Thrum, and made into the tradition of the wizard stones, Kai Pai Mahu, later the wizard stones of Kai Pai Mahu. The leader of the Kape Mahu was Kinohi, The others were named Kahaloa and Kapuni. After touring the islands of Hawaii, they settled in Waikiki. According to this story, or molelo in Hawaiian, they were, quote, unsexed by nature, and their habits coincided with their feminine appearance, although manly in stature and bearing. They are also described as having courteous ways and kindly manners, with low, soft speech. This quartet favorites of the gods were adept in the science of healing, and they cured many with the laying on of hands, and they would become famous across Oahu. When it came time for the healers to leave, there was a desire to build a permanent monument to them as a reminder so that, quote, those who might come after could see the appreciation of those who had been succored and relieved of pain and suffering by their ministrations during their sojourn among them. The people gathered near a famous, quote, bell rock in Kaimuki, and there they selected four giant boulders, which were then moved to Waikiki. Two were placed in the ground near their living place, and two in the sea at their bathing place. Their leader, Kaparmahu, began a series of ceremonies and chants in order to embed the healer's powers within the stones, burying idols which represented each of their healers under each boulder. The ceremony lasted one full moon, and once their spiritual powers had been transferred, the four mahu vanished and were never seen again. 
The first time there is mention of the Mahu occurs in the logbook of Captain William Bly, who stopped in Tahiti in 1789, where he was introduced to a, quote, tribe of people very common in Otaheite called Mahu, but they spelled it M-A-H-O-O, who, although I was certain was a man, had great marks of effeminacy about him. In the 1820s, missionaries introduced biblical laws to the islands, which led to the social stigmatization of Mahu in Hawaii. It was around this time that the island's first sodomy laws were created. And now a reminder, I will be covering sodomy laws next week for the first week of Pride Month. It's something that I've wanted to talk about for years on this show, and I think it's really, really, really important to discuss. Starting in the mid-1960s, it became law that trans or mahu people had to wear a badge identifying themselves in Hawaii. In the 1980s, the Mahu decided to fight back against the oppression, and slowly but surely, their history has become more and more known and widespread through their activism. This is largely due to the Hawaiian Renaissance, which took place in the islands in the 1970s. This is technically the second Hawaiian Renaissance. This movement is very known for its music, with artists such as Gabi Pahinui and his work with the Sons of Hawaii, or Kiola and Kapono Beamer's music. It seems like the popularity of these artists also gave way for the native Hawaiian people to begin to celebrate their heritage more openly again. It is believed that this increase in Hawaiian self-identity was also partially inspired by a famous essay from 1964 entitled On Being Hawaiian by John Dominic Holt. According to a part Corsican, part Tahitian Ali woman, an American missionary couple originally from Holden, Massachusetts, a British earl, a Boston businessman, and Hawaiians from both the high-ranking and the lesser, at a dinner party by a charming, mathematically astute lady who descends from two prominent early missionary couples, that I am actually three-eighths Hawaiian. My ancestors here included a Spanish rancher, the Ka'u Ka'u Ali, who came originally from the islands of Maui and Hawaii. I am, in depth, a product of Hawaii— an American, yes, who is a citizen of the 50th state, but I am also a Hawaiian, somewhat by blood, and enlarged by measure, by sentiment. Of this I am proud. Also in 1964, the Merry Monarch Festival was established by Helene Hale, which is a week-long cultural festival that takes place annually in Hilo, Hawaii, during the week after Easter. It honors King David Kalakua, who was called the Merry Monarch for his patronage of the arts and is credited with restoring many cultural traditions during his reign, including the hula. This created a resurgence in the study and practice of ancient hula, which was initially developed and danced in 1893. It was in 1893 that the Kingdom of Hawaii began to be overthrown by the white Christian missionaries. Teaching and learning anything about Native Hawaiian culture became illegal in 1896. The language would not be heard for the next four generations. Now let's just sit back and think about how amazing this is. This group of people were barred from enjoying and living their Hawaiian culture for over 70 years, and after that much time, it still existed. It makes me think of a seed in the ground. It's still there, a living thing, but the rest of the world just can't see it yet. That little seed knows that they're a beautiful flower and never forgets what it is and waits for the day when it can come out in bloom. Side note, it's sickening to me that white people spent so many years hiding and banning this culture, but now we exploit it? Someone help me understand. White people continue to ruin Hawaii to this day. That's why I'm like, 
do I want to visit Hawaii? Do I want to go on vacation there? I feel like if I did, I really wouldn't want to do just like a regular touristy trip there. I feel like I would probably drag anyone with me to go to a lot of these different like historical sites and things like that, just for me to be able to actually fully appreciate its culture rather than just enjoying the nice beaches and yummy drinks. I don't know. Anyway, Today, I want to talk about someone who identifies as Mahu and a modern transgender woman by the name of Hina Le Moana Wong Kalu, also known as Kumu Hina. Kumu is the Hawaiian word for teacher, and she works as a Kumu Hula or Hula teacher, a filmmaker, artist, and activist. In preparation for this episode, I watched an amazing documentary that she helped produce entitled Kumu Hina, so I may refer to her as that or simply Hina throughout the episode. She is described as being a powerful performer with a clear, strong voice and is hailed as a cultural icon. I'm going to be adding a lot of audio clips from the documentary so you can really understand who Hina is and what her experience is like living in Hawaii as Mahu. Her voice is incredibly powerful, so here's a clip from the documentary where she speaks about it. No, listen to my voice. There's nothing wahine about my voice. It's too thick and it's too low. Hina was born on May 15th, 1972, so she just had her birthday. And she was born in the district of Nu'uanu in Oahu. Her mother is of English, Hawaiian, and Portuguese descent, and her father is of Chinese descent. She was raised in a time of the Hawaiian Renaissance, and this resurgence of excitement for her heritage was incredibly inspiring to her. It seems to not only have inspired the fact that she wanted to help pass down Hawaiian culture and make that her life's work, it also seems that this new wave also helped her realize who she truly was. When growing up in the 80s, the word mahu was largely used as a transphobic and homophobic slur. In the documentary, she speaks about coming to terms with the fact that she is mahu in the 90s how it was something that not everyone in her life accepted and liked, but her family and the true friends around her embraced this. They use her dead name in the doc, which I don't love, but hey, it was Hina who was behind this project, so maybe she was okay with it being put in. Hina says that her grandparents, her grandmothers in particular, were the most supportive of her transition. She said that they only wanted her to be happy and productive. I like transparency in my life. But some people would look at my, my life transitioning from boy to girl, male to female, as being deceptive. But on the contrary, it's me being real with the rest of the world in what I see my life as. Most important to me is that what I do will reflect my love and respect for my family. She began her activism while attending college at the University of Hawaii at Manoa in 1996. Now, she works for Hello Lokahi, a public charter school dedicated to Native Hawaiian culture, language, and history. Like I mentioned, Hina is the school's hula teacher, and she is one tough cookie. Since there isn't a lot of information on Hina out there online, Being able to see her in action was the best way for me to feel like I was getting to know and understand her well enough to cover her on this show. In the beginning of the film, Kumuhina is seen giving a younger student with a low, dark ponytail two lays, one of white and one of yellow colors. Hina says, see, you get both because she's both. 
This is the introduction to her student, Ho'onani, a student who has been assigned female at birth but feels most at home in the boys' hula lesson. Ho'onani is a huge part of the documentary, and I'm going to be adding a lot of information about them as well, as I see Hina and Ho'onani as being mirror images of each other in many ways. I also want to make the note now that people use all sorts of pronouns for Ho'onani, and I will be quoting people exactly as the people in my research say things, or by using direct audio clips, using different pronouns for them. I'll be using they-them pronouns when speaking as myself for Ho'onani, in order to give them space to be able to tell me how they identify in the future. When googling Ho'onani, I discovered that they actually wrote a children's book, Ho'onani Hula Warrior, back in 2019. The description for the book online reads, Ho'onani feels in between. She doesn't see herself as a wahin, girl, or kane, boy. She's happy to be in the middle, but not everyone sees it that way. When Ho'onani finds out that there will be a school performance of traditional kane hula chant, she wants to be a part of it. But can a girl really lead an all-male troupe? Ho'onani has to try. Based on a true story, Ho'onani Hula Warrior is a celebration of Hawaiian culture and an empowering story of a girl who learns to lead and learns to accept who she really is, and in doing so, gains the respect of all those around her. Ho'onani actually has their own documentary that I can't wait to watch, which is called A Place in the Middle by filmmakers Dean Hamer and Joe Wilson, which was released in 2014. The documentarian asked Hina's students about their teacher, and it is clear to see that some of the kids have mixed understandings for their kumu's identity. One child actually says, she's actually considered a boy. Another chimes in, calling her a tomboy, but adding that it's not a big thing. This is how Ho'onani describes a mahu person. What middle means is uh, a rare person, a rare After being introduced to the adorable Ho'onani, Hina describes to the camera that it was really hard for her to find a partner. In a study from 2019 published by Psychology Today, they found that it is much harder for a transgender person in the dating world than it is for a cisgendered person. This study asked just under a thousand people what their partner preferences on dating apps were, whether it be cis woman, cis man, trans woman, trans man, or non-binary. Their results indicated that 87.5% of the participants only checked off cisgender options and excluded trans and non-binary individuals from their hypothetical dating pool. However, when they asked people who identify as queer, then those numbers were a bit different and they were more open to dating trans and non-binary people. Hina, however, has found a straight male partner and I have feelings about this guy. They almost had me tricked in the beginning, though. She and a man named Hima got married in Fiji. Hina and Hima make it a bit confusing, and I really don't like this guy, so I'm going to try to mostly refer to him as just the husband. Once they married, her husband had to stay in Fiji for a while while Hina returned to the islands to get everything together for his citizenship. Hima is from Tonga, and he explains at the top of the dock how he was initially worried about how others would perceive him for dating a mahu, that they would think he himself was gay. But he loves her and wants to be with her. People from Tonga are not as accustomed to their kind of relationship, and it made him nervous. After this first interaction, I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to like that guy. But that changes. Here's a clip of Hina talking about her husband. The truth is he's very protective over me. Sometimes he thinks that I would leave him or, you know, go find somebody else. I said, 
You don't know me. When I love you, I will love you to the to the last day. The next time we see her husband being interviewed for the documentary, he speaks about how openly homophobic and transphobic he was before meeting Hina. He even speaks of physical violence against those groups of people, and is inc- and it's incredibly disturbing. I would play the audio clip, but he isn't speaking English, so it would be a little bit hard to follow. When we see them together next, it's when she is joining her husband in Fiji to bring him back to Hawaii. At one point, she's on the phone with a friend of hers back home, who happens to be a man, which enrages Hima, and he totally loses it. This was so triggering to me, and I really hate that Hina is in a relationship with this bastard. He keeps saying, fuck your friend to her, and eventually says, fuck you and your friend, and that he would kick their friend's ass. Listeners, if anyone, romantic partner or otherwise, ever speaks to you this way, trust me, run. I do not care how much you love them or see the possibility of change in them. By you staying, you are telling that person hurting you that it's okay for them to do that. And I'm really not saying that as a way to blame the victim. I've been in this situation myself. But I say this because violence, especially domestic violence, escalates. As more and more violence is introduced into a relationship, the harder and more dangerous it is for the abused person to leave. We should all know by now that a woman or partner who is leaving someone who is abusing them is at the most risk of losing their lives when they are leaving that relationship. Thankfully, in this instance, Hina does defend herself, telling her husband that she won't be like a typical Tongan wife. In an interview after the argument, she tells the filmmakers that with faith and courage, she thinks she can fix him. My husband, Hema, is an incredibly jealous Polynesian man sometimes. And like many other Polynesian men who have this trait of jealousy, they show this to the ones they truly love. And it's one of the hardest things for them to overcome. But I know with lots of faith, lots of courage, and true belief in the ability that love will overcome, the diamond that I see in my husband will eventually be very shiny one day. He goes back to her and they kiss and make up, and I am left with a gross feeling in my stomach. The film then jumps to one month later. We see her husband sitting on a chair inches away from the TV playing a video game while Hina makes food and begs him to take a shower. When she says the food is ready, Hima completely ignores her. We also learn that he spends most of his time drinking kava root and hanging out with his Tongan pals on the island instead of being there for his wife. But more on that later. On top of her work at the school, Hina is the chair of the Oahu Burial Council, which ensures that no ground development interferes with the resting place of their families. She was appointed by the governor for this job. State laws require developers to consult with the council when burial grounds may be disturbed. According to the law, the councils shall, one, determine the preservation or relocation of previously identified Native Hawaiian burial sites, two, assist the department in the inventory and identification of Native Hawaiian burial sites, three, make recommendations regarding appropriate management, treatment, and protection of Native Hawaiian burial sites, and on any other matters relating to Native Hawaiian burial sites, four, elect a chairperson for a four-year term who shall serve for not more than two consecutive terms, and five, maintain a list of appropriate Hawaiian organizations, agencies, and offices to notify regarding the discovery of the remains. Here's Hina at work. Our connection to our families and to our past. 
This project is one of the biggest projects that has come to Honolulu. What I have the Burial Council doesn't stand in opposition or support of any project, including the rail. Our role is simply to remind these projects of their responsibility to treat our ancestral remains with aloha, with dignity and respect. Please make sure that you have those cultural monitors because this should not be a fast turnaround now. One of the things that Hina and the group focuses on is the rail, or the Honolulu Rail Transit Project, which is a light metro system under construction in Honolulu. There has been debate about building of this rail for more than 20 years. Proponents of the rail say that it will alleviate the worsening traffic congestion, which is among the worst in the United States. I can't imagine anything being worse than the 405. Good God. In opposition, advocates question its cost-effectiveness compared to, quote, road widening or lane addition, and claims that it will have marginal impact on traffic. Like most infrastructure work in Hawaii, construction of the rail is likely to uncover historic human remains, and that's where Hina and the rest of the council comes in. In October 2009, the council refused to sign a pragmatic agreement regarding the rail due to concerns about the likely burial sites located along the line's proposed route. Three construction projects for the rail in this area since 2002 have encountered unforeseen human remains, which led to delays. Here I am on a Friday night. Uh, I am here uh, because I choose to be an active council member. I prefer to be on site in case there's anything in the trench work that's being done. None of us would want our immediate family yeah. dug up. Just because we don't know who these people are and there's no marker, you know? Yeah. Is it, does it make it okay? To turn one's back on one's ancestors is to sever one's self from one's future. And I will do everything that I can to prevent that. All right, I feel like this is a good spot to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and I will just see you in a moment. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. All right, we're back. All right, so the rest of my notes are basically a recap of the parts of the documentary that I think are imperative to Hina's story. Like I said, there isn't a lot of biography information about her online, so I feel like this was my best source. Much of the film revolves around the preparation of the final performances for the students at the school and her relationship with them. The filmmakers also follow Hoanani around as well, which I think was a really powerful device, showing the younger budding Mahu compared to his grown Mahu mentor. By the way, Hoanani can rip on the ukulele. They sing this beautiful song they wrote called Family. Family, that's the important thing to Onani also adds that they cannot lie, especially in their songs. They only sing the truth. I write songs to express what I'm feeling inside. I write songs uh, that are true. I never tell a lie in my songs. And 
Hoanani truly just has such a beautiful voice as well. Hina compliments them often in front of the boys' hula class for the fact that she has more ku, or masculinity, in their voice than the biological boys in the class do. This is a time for strength. This is the time of ku. We are out of the time of lono. This is a time of ku. You have a biological wahine standing over here in front of you because she has more ku than everybody else around here. Even though she lacks the main essential parts of ku. <laughs> but in her mind and in her heart, she has ku. So, in your mind and in your na'au, in your no'o no'o and in your na'au. Olalo my no'o no'o. Na'au. In your no'o no'o, in your thoughts and in your na'au, in your gut and your heart, the Hawaiian heart, down here, you gotta have ku. Like I said, size doesn't matter. Because even with nothing, she no more cool down there. Never had it, never will. Do not let Ho'o have bigger cool than you. Because if so, you guys, shame, I swear. All right, here we go. Love you all. One of the main things that Kumuhina tries to drive home to her students was the fact that it wasn't that long ago that they were not allowed to learn the things that they are today. Do the dances and chants. Speak the language. None of it. She feels that the high school students are the ones who slack off the most and don't seem to really grasp the importance of what they're doing in their lessons. She's often very frustrated with them, and in one scene, another teacher comes out to speak with the older children about their behavior. The other teacher gets incredibly emotional talking about how their teacher, Kumuhina, is a living legend and that she is to be revered and respected. This is a cultural icon. In Hawaii, do you guys all understand? Hina is trying to hold on to what is left of Hawaiian culture. To say the word kumu means what? But what does it mean? If you say aloha to anybody, where is it coming from? Your mouth? Supposed to be. Or don't say the word. When you sing Hawaii Pono'i, what flag do you have on your chest? Hi, Hawaii. We didn't get to sing that stuff in our schools. We had to pledge allegiance to the flag that took over Hawaii. Do you get it? There's a reason you were born in Hawaii or came home to Hawaii. There's some reason. It's divine energy that runs up through the lava. Do you guys get it? You are the warriors of today. And you can really tell that these kids really do love and respect her. They even fear her at times. She can be tough, but that's because she knows the importance of every detail in the performance in order to fully honor their traditions. Here's another clip where she speaks about the importance she feels in her work. My purpose in this lifetime is to pass on the true meaning of aloha. Love, honor, and respect. It's a responsibility that I take very seriously. Now, I wanted to talk more about Hoanani and what their experience as a young mahu has been like. They show this scene of Valentine's Day at school, and Hoanani is hanging out with the boys. They really seem to only hang out with the boys. And they were giving them shit for not receiving any valentines. So mean. At the same time, kids are going to rib on each other sometimes, especially a group of guy friends. Not saying it's right, 
but it happens. Ho and Nani seem to laugh it off, but I wonder if it did bother them that they didn't get a valentine. Then we go with them to their home and we meet their mom. The mom talks about how Ho and Nani is a quote, tomboy, and that she herself was the same when she was growing up, but that she wants her child to remember that she is a girl and hopes that they grow out of this phase. Ugh, and it just broke my heart. Here's their mom talking about it. I already knew that she was tomboy or whatever, and that's fine because I was, you know, I was like that growing up. In fact, I didn't wear a dress till I was in the 11th grade. <laughs> I would help you, but you'd become spoiled. Really? Yeah. I hope Ho'onani can be comfortable in her own skin. You know, being in the middle, I guess it's all right. But I've always told her that, yes, you dress like a boy. Yes, you can act like a boy, but you are a girl. It's okay to be a tomboy. It's okay to dance with the boys or whatever, as long as you know you're a girl. I'm not worried. It's still early. It's okay. I can't imagine what it must be like being Ho'onani. It seems that they have so many people in their life who are accepting of who they are, but then you see these hints that there's still a lot of stigma around their child possibly being Mahu. Later in the documentary, there's a really sweet moment between Kumuhina and Ho'onani, and I'll share it with you when we get to that point. Back to the issues with her husband, she is in a lesson with her students when Hima calls her saying he's late for work and missed the bus. Hina then gets annoyed with him and it's clear he's done this before. She tells him to call his boss and tell her what happened and to get on the next bus. Duh. Now, I've been in conversations like this with a partner before, not Max, when I was expected to take care of everything in their life for them, like I was their mother. I guess it's been passed down to me because my dad used to do the exact same thing to my mom. He knew how to do virtually nothing for himself. Even though now they're divorced, he still asks my mom to get things done for him. I felt so bad for Hina in this moment. Here she is, at work, and her husband is too much of a baby to take care of things for himself. The kids are all standing there, watching this go down, waiting for them to begin their rehearsal, while Hina has to take time away from them to deal with her idiot child husband. Then, when the time comes for the final performance, her husband's phone rings, audibly, in the audience, and he answers the phone! I had to pause the documentary at this point and just be like, what is going on? What is happening? Leave his ass, please. Then he gets up and goes outside to finish his conversation on the phone, missing the performance that his wife has spent the entire year working on and perfecting. When the show is over, he comes up to her and tells her that he is going to meet up with his friends instead of celebrating with her. You can see how this breaks Hina's heart. Frustrated with how things are going for her on the island, she decided to take a road trip with Hima to meet some of her other Mahu friends to help her get back to her roots a bit. In my head, I'm thinking, why are you bringing this wet rag of a husband with you? But I think it turns out to be a learning experience for him, too. They brought along Hina's best friend since they were kids. This friend actually had a vision of Hina looking exactly like the beautiful Mahu we see today before she came out. It seems like they were really there to love and support her through her transition and truly loves her as a person. We all need friends like that. At this part of the documentary, Hina talks about the differences between being a Mahu in the city where she lives and what she feels like when she's with her friends in the more rural and remote areas of the islands. There, she feels like she can be her truest, most authentic self. Being a Mahu Wahine from the city 
It means that my life is always aspiring to what city life will expect. But these are my friends who help to ground me and center me and remind me of how to just be happy in existing in my life as I am. It's part of the magic around traditional Mahu. On the trip, we meet one of her Mahu friends, who sometimes goes by Uncle Paul and sometimes is Paula, depending on how they're feeling. On this trip, they discuss how it is more common for straight men to be with Mahu in Hawaii than it is in Tonga, and how that's something that her husband is beginning to learn and understand. Okay, I know I'm jumping around a lot, but now I'm back to the final performance and what occurred during those scenes outside of the drama with the husband. Before the performance begins, Hina pulls Hoanani aside to speak with them privately. Here's a clip of their conversation, which literally made me cry like a baby. For me to have students stand in the middle can be one of the biggest challenges. There's potential backfire from parents and families who may look at this and say that I should encourage a girl to go stand with the girls and a boy to stand with the boys. But that's not my role. My role is to take their young person and to help mold them into the best that they can be. Sometimes I feel like I might be setting you up for some disappointment. I know that you like to go stand with all the boys. And I know that's where you like to go. And Kumu's okay with that. But when you work with other people, they may expect you to stand in the girls' line. Okay? So, for as long as you stay a young person, you just roll with it. You know? When you get to be my age, you're not going to have to move for anybody else. Okay? To think about Kumuhina's perspective, back then, people intimidated her of, of being that way. Nobody respected the middle people, but I talk the truth all the time. I don't like to lie. So, yeah, we both are in the middle, and nobody teases us for it. In the sweetest part of the documentary, before they go on stage, the high school boys in Hoanani speak with Hina, and the boys show their support for Hoanani leading the group, saying that she's a boy, and that, quote, she has more balls than all of us here. When the curtain comes up for the final performance, Hina starts it off, singing beautifully. Then, the younger kids come out and do their numbers, most of which are uplifting and celebratory and fun. Then, when the high schoolers come out, the lights lower and the mood changes into something much more intense. The drum beats signal it's time for battle, and the boys, plus Hoanani, come out. Hoanani is front and center before the rest of their classmates, leading them in chants and movements. It's really something to behold, as Hoanani seems much younger and is much smaller than the rest of the boys, but they carry so much power. When the performance is over, the other boys officially make Hoanani an honorable boy in their troupe. I just give Ho'o props 
one little kid like her, she get more guts than all of us. She's a real good teacher. She's like a kumu to all us boys. She's like the shadow, but now she's sticking up now. She does have more than all of us here. And that's the bottom line. I'd like to thank you all for giving me this opportunity. I'd like to thank Kuhina, and I hope you guys like me uh, for your leader. So. It was really interesting to learn about Hina's story in this particular time in her life. I'm incredibly curious how her relationship with her husband is going, how all of the work that she does for the burial council is going, and how her school and amazing students are as well. I also really, really want an update on Hovanani because I am obsessed with that child. I think that they are so cool and amazing and inspiring, and I'm just so thankful that I was exposed to these amazing people this week and they have been so moving and wonderful for me and I was and am so moved by everything I learned this week from the history of the Mahu and the Four Stones to learning about Hina and her life's work and watching Hoanani experience growing up. One thing that continually came to my mind this week though was how we as a society have moved backwards in so many ways. Hundreds of years ago, Mahu were held up as goddesses and royalty, respected and beloved, but that was all tainted by the white man. Now, to this day, Hawaiians are trying to bring back that old way of viewing Mahu, and it is so much harder to unlearn the hatred that has been taught to them than I'd like to admit. It's amazing to see how Hawanani's classmates revere them and talk about them. But that was also just one scene in a documentary. I don't know about the hardships that they go through in their day-to-day -day life. I hope nothing more that Kumuhina finds love and happiness and peace within herself, no matter who her partner is, no matter where she is, that she can always feel that authentic Mahu part of herself. Here's one last clip from the documentary where she sums everything up. I really don't know what's in store for my husband and me. I'm going to be here tomorrow. Tomorrow. What I do know is that I'm fortunate to live in a place that allows me to love who I love. I can be whoever I want to be. That's what I hope most to leave with my students, a genuine understanding of unconditional acceptance and respect. To me, that's the true meaning of aloha. All right, everybody, that concludes the amazing AAPI History Month here on Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. I hope that you all enjoyed these episodes as much as I enjoyed the prep and the recording for all of them. But I am so excited to start shifting gears into Pride Month. So again, I want to remind you all that if you'd like to share your coming out story, please, please do so by sending me an email or a direct message. And I cannot wait to share them with the listeners. I am so excited for all of the fun things that I have planned. I have a guest as a question mark right now. Scheduling might be a bit of a conflict, but I would love to have this person on and have you all be introduced to them and chat with them. But you know what? I think that that is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.